It's November 23rd. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. A very good and a very joyful Thanksgiving to you. I sure hope that you are surrounded by folks who love you today, or if nothing else, the memories of those who are gone, but no doubt love you still. And that's what I'd like to share with you today, why I'm thankful for my family, both those here and those in heaven. Now, in my case, I've got a pretty incredible family. It's one that actually helped build this nation. And as I'm about to share with you, it's a reminder, I think, of how important it is to remember them and their sacrifice and their fight for this country on a day that is built around thanks. So come with me this morning to the very earliest days of this nation before actually it was even a nation at all. We head to Massachusetts to the late 1600s. A ship arrived from England in the latter part of that century with one of my ancestors, although we're not sure which one, that's because uh, later in the year 1787, a baby was born in Massachusetts with the name of Jephthah, but the names of his mother and his father were never recorded. But baby Jephthah was raised by somebody. We believe his mother was a woman named Thankful, incredibly enough. And she took him to New Hampshire. And he was raised by a man named Nathaniel, who was a widower. And he had a lot of kids of his own, but for whatever reason, he opened up his heart to one more. When Jephthah became a young man, he met a young lady, and he fancied her very much. Her name was Betsy Emerson. She was a distant relative of Ralph Waldo Emerson, the poet. Well, Betsy gave up her last name and took that of Jephthah's. His last name, of course, was Wright. And they wed in Stoddard, New Hampshire, back in 1807, and they headed west. For a time, they didn't go too far. They just farmed in upstate New York. But then they traveled on to Michigan, where Jephthah became a blacksmith. From there, they decided to go back into farming, buying a plot of land in Steuben County, Indiana, in the year 1839. Now, in that year, Jephthah was 52 years of age with a big family in tow, 14 kids in all. But time had taken its toll on him. His wife, Betsy, had passed away. And you can see the time on his face. Pictures uh, show his brow pretty furrowed, his cheeks sunken in from all the years of Stress and sorrow and hard work, I would imagine. While in Indiana, some of his kids remained with him, but others left, although sometimes not exactly because they wanted to. And that's because Jephthah had a rule. For his boys, when they turned 18, he gave them an axe, he shook their hand, and that was that. They had to leave the house, fly out of the nest, and branch out on their own. And that lesson of tough love was not lost on two of his sons in particular. One was named Anson and the other Albert. And in the year 1852, these two young men, axes in hand, were trying to make a go of it. And they were strongly considering a new law called the Oregon Donation Land Act. And here's what Congress promised these two fellows and others at the time. If you could get out west to the Oregon Territory, you could have 320 acres. Never mind that some of those lands were inhabited by native people. Just get there. That's what the government said, all because this country was staking her claim and moving west. Now, the reason that our government did that in no small part was because of what the explorers Lewis and Clark found out west 50 years prior. My goodness, they saw an astonishing land, didn't they? Full of vast plains and mountains, incredibly rich soil, promises of rocky minerals and timber. 
They saw rivers, hills full of fish and game of all kinds. Truly, it was breathtaking. And it was on those lands that the U.S. government wanted to be on. And that's what Anson and Albert wanted too. The promise of a new life and maybe adventure. And so they left in the year 1852 on what would become the Oregon Trail, a 2,000 mile long journey from Independence, Missouri to Oregon City, Oregon. Well, Albert was relatively young at that time, age 27, when they set out. His brother Anson was younger yet, age 25. Albert brought along with him his young wife, a gal named Julia Ann, and together they had two very young daughters. Anson, on the other hand, had not yet married. He was a bachelor, but he knew uh, several friends, and he thought that they would be pretty helpful for the long journey to Oregon. So they invited them, and these two fellows accepted. And so this group set off late into the fall of 1852. But before too long, the brothers had an idea. They thought it best that Anson and the two friends, they should go on ahead. And that's because the single men could move more quickly, get to Oregon to the claims a little bit faster. Meanwhile, Albert and the girls, they would winter in the Midwest, continuing on when the weather improved. And that was probably wise for a lot of reasons, but one of them was subtle. A little baby was on the way, a baby boy, growing inside of Julia Ann. He would later be born in the Nebraska Territory, delivered by his mother on her own, no doctors, no midwives, brought into this world in the back of a wagon with her husband and daughters looking on. They named him Silas. Well, months later, Albert and the family, including little baby Silas, they arrived in Oregon City. And what a joyful thing that was to be greeted by his brother Anson, who wonderfully had arrived safely many weeks earlier, securing the family claim. But not only was this a joyful moment, it was kind of incredible, actually. An estimated 65,000 people died on the Oregon Trail, suffering from things like dysentery and smallpox, accidents, drownings. Well, thankfully, they were not one of those 65,000. They lived. Albert, Anson, and the growing family, they then bought and began raising sheep in what we call the Willamette Valley. Six years later, though, tragedy struck. Brother Anson died. We don't know how, but we do know that it left a deep scar on his brother because Anson died at the young age of 31, having never married. For a time, Albert carried on without his close brother Anson, but he grew restless. And he wrote letters back to his father, Jephthah, in Indiana, saying as much. He also said that there were just too many people in Willamette Valley and he wanted to go somewhere else. So he did. Off to eastern Oregon he went. He and the family pushed their bands of sheep up and over the mountains to an isolated little patch of ground in the very, very unforgiving hills of the Blue Mountains. And he chose to stop in a little draw next to a very, very small creek in those mountains, surrounded by a lot of timber and not much else. He then built a single-room cabin in the fall of 1871. The family prayed for an easy winter with their sheep, and they settled in, hoping for a quick spring. But fortune did not smile upon them that winter. It was a tough one. And so Albert and the family moved again, this time down to lower elevations on a new plot of land with marginally better soil and some better water. And so for the third time, he and his family built a new home, all by hand, with axes, saws, using stones from the creek to build a foundation. Well, as Albert and the family settled in, he got a letter from his father, Jephthah. He was in poor health, crippled up with rheumatoid arthritis, and he knew that his time was short. And so he wrote to his son, 
Dear Albert, I have lived to be a very old man. I have lived to bury one dear wife and ten children. I should like to see you all very much, but I not expect to in the flesh. But our spirits, they may meet hereafter. I hope these lines find you well with the blessings of our Heavenly Father. Farewell, Jephthah. That was the last letter that Albert got from his father. Jephthah died several months later, buried with others in the family cemetery in Steuben County, Indiana. Well, Albert and Julia Ann, they continued on with their life in Oregon, working very, very hard, and it showed the farm flourished, growing to over 9,000 acres in all. As you would imagine, Julia Ann had her hands full. She tended to the kids and to the home. Albert farmed and ranched, of course, but he also served as a local pastor. He would get on horseback uh, each Saturday, and he would travel to different churches and in the area and preach the gospel. Well, his family grew in size, six kids in all. Silas, of course, was the one that was born in Nebraska. And later, another little boy came along, and he and uh, Julia Ann named him Anson after his uncle. Well, as you would imagine, they had a hard pioneer life, tending to the 9,000-acre ranch and all the chores, but it was also a joyful life. We have letters that talk about dances and concerts that were hosted at the ranch with all kinds of fun instruments like French harps and accordions. The neighbors even joined the family in building a little schoolhouse on the farm. It served the many families all around them. It also doubled as a community center and a church. Well, as Albert's family grew, all the kids were wonderful, of course, in their own ways. But one stood out, or at least so it seems, and that's Silas. Exactly why he stood out so much, I don't know. Maybe there was something special that was born into him when his mother brought him into this world on the Oregon Trail. But you just see it in the pictures of him. You can just tell. He had these very dark, piercing eyes, dark hair, a thinner face, high cheekbones. He was a very distinct-looking man, very intense, driven. Well, as little Silas grew into an older man, he became an excellent shot with a rifle. And at least according to the family storytellers, he even lived for a time with the Native American people in the area. He learned their languages, apparently. And that proved to be quite important. One of the chiefs warned him at one point that there was an Indian raid in the coming days. And so Silas was able to warn his family. They took refuge and the ranch was saved. Silas later married a local girl. Her name was Martha. And together, they grew the ranch into an even more prosperous place. But as they started to raise their own family, there was one issue between them. You see, Silas was a devout Methodist. Uh, Martha, however, was not. She was still a Christian woman, but of a more um, general variety, shall we say. And that caused them endless strife. For instance, she would insist that he go with her to her local Christian church, but she refused to ever step foot in his, well, dirty Methodist church, apparently. Well, towards the end of his life, he told her, Martha, do not have my funeral at your church when I die, nor will you bury me in your cemetery. And if you do, I will insist to the Lord that I be returned to the earth such that I can burn your church to the ground. <laughs> well, several years later, Silas did pass away of old age. And Martha, naughty Martha, she ignored his wishes. The funeral was held at her church, not his. Well, as the horse-drawn buggy was taking his coffin towards the cemetery, some of the folks looked back only seven blocks after they left the church. And there it was. The Christian church was on fire. 
The entire building engulfed in flames and burned to the ground within a couple minutes. So take from that what you will. But in my family, here's the lesson. Do not mess around with someone who says that they are a serious Methodist. All right? Just saying. At any rate. So the decades go by and the children of Silas and Martha, they carried on, had lots of kids of their own, lots of cousins growing up all around them. Well, one year in the early 1900s, one of the cousins was put in charge of taking the family's wool crop to Portland to be sold. And to be clear, it was the one crop for the whole year. There was no other source of money to keep operations going. Unfortunately, this cousin was tempted by the lights and the booze and the women of Portland. So yes, he sold the wool and he promptly spent that cash every last penny. And then he slowly made his way home, tucked his tail between his legs, and once at home, as you can imagine, there were words, and it nearly broke the family. Neighbors helped them get by that year, plus they made do with what little they had, but nevertheless, they survived. From then to the 1940s and 50s and 60s, the ranch came under the care of my great-grandfather, then my grandfather, and then my father. And so it remains with my aunt and uncle operating it to this very day. Over 150 years after Albert and Julia Ann came out of the mountains with their sheep and built their home with their bare hands. The home, by the way, it remains standing to this day. It's now full of photos and letters, a diary from the Oregon Trail. We've got uh, family Bibles and more than a few guns that are up on the walls. Those were used over the years by the various right men. And now, here we are. One of the right men sitting with you this morning, telling you the story of my family on this day of thanks. We sit here together today. I think it's important for me to say something that whatever gifts or successes or accomplishments that I've had in my life, none of them would have ever have been possible had it not been for these ancestors. In other words, I'm here because of a pioneering group of men and women who got on a boat and left England in the 1600s. Then a baby came along, raised by a widower in New Hampshire, a baby that became a man who had 14 babies of his own. And then two of those little ones grew up to find themselves inside of a wagon on the Oregon Trail with a new baby born in the Nebraska Territory in 1853. And that baby later became a young man who, because of his own initiative with the native people, managed to save his family's ranch and his family. I'm also here, I think, despite the fact that we had a cousin who spent the family's money on booze and women who was cursed out by a Methodist who taught those around him that you do not dare trifle with such a Christian man. And if you doubt that, I got a burnt church to prove it. So that's why I'm here today. That's my story. And it's one of thanks. But I think it's also the story of America, a country full of people from all around the world who... If we pause today to reflect, we are thankful for their stories. We are thankful for them as well, because they worked hard to make these lands something good and something exceptional. They sacrificed to create a more perfect union on a foundation of their hard work and love of country. And I think that that is worth being thankful for today and every day, really. So to you and yours, I say, happy Thanksgiving. May your hearts be full, your day joyful, and the blessings of God and liberty be with us all. 
and may our ancestors smile upon us for all the work that we have done and all of the work that we have yet to do. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's Thanksgiving episode of The Right Report. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.